Matthew 5, verses 21 and following, as we remain standing for the reading of God's word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over the judge and the judge to the guard you be put in prison truly I say to you you will never get out until you've paid the last penny this is the word of God you may be seated Father as we open your word this morning and we look to your word and we see a standard of righteousness that we know we don't have on our own I pray that you would keep our hearts from from closing ourselves off to you. From giving up and walking away and saying, if that's who you are, we don't have a chance and so we want nothing to do with it. Keep us from that. Father, let us instead see your word and see the standard of righteousness that Christ gives us and draw us in this morning. Draw us in closer to our Savior. And as we come to a better understanding of what Jesus is teaching us, God, make us more like our Savior. And let our witness to our neighbors be more true and more genuine. And let our worship of Jesus Christ for what he has accomplished for us be more true and more genuine. God, give us guidance this morning as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we we get into things, just real quickly, next week, I want to let you know, Pastor Josh Morgan from Grace Church East County or Grace Church La Mesa will be here sharing the word with us. I'll be out of town on vacation. So, um... He'll be leading us in the word. Ronnie Renfro from Response Church will be leading us in song. It's been a a, a joy to have um, folks from other churches worshiping with us together. A good reminder of of the brotherhood that we share with Christians all around San Diego. It's also good to just hear what's happening in other churches and see the gifts that God has given to other churches, isn't it? So we want to thank Ryan this morning from Mission Trails Church. And as, as Chase continues to serve us, um, be sure and, and, and thank him for his, for his work. I think he has, in my conversations with him, is taking great joy in leading us uh, before God together. And so I appreciate it. And I think we all um, do too from hearing you sing. Um, well, last week, as we looked to God's word and, and we saw that Jesus had taught us that he had come to fulfill the law, we, we learned more about what exactly that meant. This week, and for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which is going to take us a long time, 
Jesus is going to apply his teaching. All right, that's what a good sermon does. A good preacher takes the teaching that he gives and then he applies it. So in, the, in each of these next sections that we'll spe- see, especially in chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see Jesus take the law, the way that it was written in the Old Testament, and then show what it looks like for that law to be fulfilled in him. So when we read this morning in, in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Jesus is going to show us the true righteousness that this old law points to. And it's a righteousness that he lives out. We'll see. He's going to do the same with adultery and divorce and swearing oaths and so forth. All of these examples of of the greater righteousness that he reveals in himself. Think of it like this as we think of what it means to fulfill the law uh, following up from last week. Think of a young married soldier who goes off to war. And while he's there, his wife sends notice to him that she's pregnant. The baby arrives, and he's still away. And so she sends him a picture of his his newborn son. In the picture, the soldier can see that the child has his mother's eyes. That that he has the father's nose, that he has this head full of of dark hair. What is that picture to him? Is that his child? It's not. The picture is a representation of the child. But it isn't the child. It doesn't tell him what the child sounds like or smells like or really even much about the child's personality, does it? It's just a picture. But in the same way that the Old Testament law was meant to point those awaiting the Christ towards Christ, the picture gives the soldier hope and joy in meeting the child. Does that make sense? The law, for us, is a picture of the righteousness of God, but it's two-dimensional. So when you read the Old Testament, you see a a two-dimensional picture of the righteousness of God. It's flat. It gives us some truths about the character of God, how how he values his image bearers, how he is righteously jealous for the worship of, of his people, how he desires that they love one another. But it's just a picture. When Jesus arrives, though, we see the person behind the picture. And the person reveals much more than the law had revealed about the righteousness of God. Because we get to say, see the way that God lives. We get to see the way that he interacts with people. We get to see his love. We get to see him heal and teach so, so the way that we're going to approach each of these teachings, each of these sections in these coming weeks, is to look at the old law, the picture, and then we're going to look at how Jesus reveals to us the true nature, the true depth of that old law. And then we'll always end with some way that the gospel helps us to live in accordance with the true nature of the law, the righteousness that Jesus reveals to us. We're going to answer that question. How does the gospel help us to live in Christ's righteousness? All right? A lot of really practical teaching. Uh, For those of you who have been bored (laughs) with the the doctrine that we've been going through as we set up a lot of this, this is your chance to to rejoice in the practical teachings of our Savior. All right? Um, 
So the, the old law that Jesus points to this week is murder. In verse 21, he says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's the old picture of righteousness. Not murdering people. It was a standard of righteousness that people, they, they pretty well understood, didn't they? That law is as old as Noah. Did you know? Way back in Genesis 9-6, right after the flood, the floods have receded, and God is this, making this new covenant with Noah. And God tells him, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. What's he saying? This is before the Ten Commandments. Don't murder. This is supposed to be a really easy law for us. It's supposed to be one that we easily understand. I think that's why it's the first one that Jesus points to. It's kind of a touch point for Jesus to refer to a law that everybody agreed with. On Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is the, what we celebrate as evangelical Christians today, we realize this law, this law, do not murder, it's not so obvious anymore, is it? Culturally, we've moved beyond being able to assume that this is a that there's a common understanding of what murder is our culture is different than the one that Jesus talked to the old standard of righteousness the the old testament laws are growing increasingly foreign to our culture in fact i think it's safe to say that as a nation the majority of our citizens no longer look to God's righteousness to guide them. That's not the standard of righteousness anymore. Instead, what is? Is that the individual, the individual's right to self-determine her own sense of right. And that has eclipsed the old standard. And this would be terrible if it weren't for a truth that we hold on to as Christians. The righteousness of God has been revealed in Jesus Christ. He's a far greater representation of that standard of righteousness than even those old Ten Commandments. And because in God's justice, Jesus took all of our unrighteousness with him to his death, and then he rose again, we can now live in Christ. And being in Christ, we as Christians wear his righteousness. That's our new outfit. That's our, that's our robes, our clothing. And that is the righteousness that we're supposed to show to the world around us so that they'd see our good works, as we read a couple weeks ago, and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? When you think about it, you have a world who is... Uh, is a culture that standard of righteousness is no longer gone, and yet there are Christians still in that culture. This is, this is interesting for us. Rather than fighting to have the Ten Commandments monument as a monument posted in every town, every schoolhouse, and so on, we as Christians are supposed to be a living representation of the righteousness of Christ. Think about that. So that if people see you, 
and they watch your life, Christian, they'll already know what the goodness of God is like. Think about that opportunity that we have. The righteousness of Christ given to us is now on display for the world in far more places than one courthouse in town. God has made us salt and light for that purpose. And as we get into Jesus' teaching here about what the righteousness, that righteousness looks like, we're going to see that isn't easy, is it? That is a, it's a heavy standard to carry. This bright shining light of the righteousness of God that we're supposed to be is very difficult to be. Here's the the first glimpse of that greater righteousness of Christ. It begins in our passage this morning in verse 22. This moves us into the second section if you're taking notes. Jesus said, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, this this is what the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is supposed to look like. This is Jesus' righteousness. It's a righteousness that reaches the heart, isn't it? Even a wicked heart can follow the old law. Even a wicked heart can restrain itself from murdering people. Lots of non-Christians don't murder. This is, this is how the reasoning would go for how or why not to murder someone. Just kind of follow with me. I really hate this person, but if I kill them, I'll probably go to prison and lose my freedom to do the things I like to do. And if I go to prison, I'll lose my ability to provide for my family. And people will think poorly of me. And my parents will be ashamed of me. Worse yet, I may even fail at that murder attempt and be killed myself. That's a, what you call a good protection against, against murder. Those are all really good reasons not to kill somebody, aren't they? But they don't display a heart of righteousness. Fu- fundamentally, it's a hunger for righteousness that prevents... It's not the hunger for righteousness that prevents that murder, but it's a a, a protection of self-interest. The desire to protect self-interest outweighs the desire to kill someone. And so that old law is easily lived up to in those senses. Jesus is saying, though, my righteousness is a greater righteousness than this. And look what he shows us. This greater righteousness, God's righteousness, doesn't even get angry at his brother to begin with. Doesn't even insult him, ever. And then Jesus makes it, he presses us, he says, that any righteousness that doesn't meet that standard, his standard, the revealed standard, the fulfilled standard of righteousness, is liable to judgment. Anyone who doesn't meet this standard of righteousness is just is liable to the judgment of hell as murder is. Who got angry this week? (laughs) We get angry, don't we? 
We all get angry. And it's such, a, it's such a common issue for us that many of us think that if we don't get as angry as others, then it isn't a problem for us. Right, this is where that self-righteousness comes in. My anger problem is not as bad as his, so I must be better in some ways. My issue is not as bad, but it is. That's what Jesus is showing us. He's saying even the slightest hint of disdain in our hearts, a hint, makes us liable to judgment, to hell. Part of what Jesus wants to show us is that our sin problem, no matter how internalized it is, no matter how minor it may seem, it's a problem. Typically, this is how we think of anger. We think of an angry person as someone who outwardly expresses anger. We think of rage or, or yelling. The more physical the outburst, the angrier the person. That's actually not the case, though. How we express anger is, is cultural. So folks from, we'll call them louder families, may have a more visible expression of anger. And folks from quieter families may actually be angrier, but their expression is more subtle. It, it may come out in little biting remarks. Sarcasm. But the anger's still there. It's just as destructive. It's just as sinful. Death by nuclear explosion or death by a thousand paper cuts. It's still, it's still anger. It's still there. This anger that Jesus is talking about comes in lots of forms. And we all can can identify with one of these. Resentment is anger. Sarcasm is anger. Passive aggressive behavior. That's anger. Bitterness in your heart towards someone. That's anger. Outright hostility, the obvious one. That's anger. Little sideways belittling statements. Those are expressions of anger. Holding a grudge against someone. Anger. Anytime we begin to think, he's an idiot because he's, do- he's, he's not doing things the way I like them to be done. That's anger. Or, or she must be stupid because she doesn't know what I know. Or he's a fool because he obviously couldn't figure out what I've figured out. Those are expressions of anger. And then here's how we complicate the matter. All right? Because we have self-justifying hearts. We'll say, well, yeah, I'm angry. Yes, I, I'll, I've been willing to admit that. I got angry. But she made me angry. Right? She made me angry, or I have a right to be angry because of what they did. Sometimes we'll even get angry with someone because we're mad at them for causing our anger to boil over. I hate being angry, and and now I'm angry because that dummy did such and such. I wouldn't have gotten so angry about being angry if he hadn't... You see the spiral? But what's Jesus saying to us? Who is liable for our anger? we are our anger comes from inside of us it's a part of who we are it's an expression of the sin in us and it's rising up from our hearts like lava and then flowing down in all sorts of different ways the the person who says something to you that you respond to in anger 
did not make you angry. They're just a circumstance that brought out the sin that is already inside of you. Jesus is saying that every little bit of anger in us is a condemnable offense to God. And the only right judgment from God for our anger is hell. Are you beginning to see why we so desperately need Jesus? He's taken our rightly deserved condemnation for us. If you are angry or you have ever been angry, then you need Jesus' righteousness or you cannot stand before a holy God. Thanks be to God. We who are in Christ have been clothed in his righteousness. Amen? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy to find help in the time of need. Hebrews 4.16 And sometimes that's where we stop as Christians. We say, I've been forgiven. Being a Christian, obeying God is hard. So that's enough. I'll stop there. I'll stop with forgiveness. But that's only half of Christianity. What happens when you are unified with Christ and forgiven is that the righteousness we get from him begins to show. By the power of the Spirit in us, Christ's righteousness in us isn't just a a technicality. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's the new body that we put on. Not only does it bring us into right fellowship with God but it's a righteousness that actually becomes our own as we have put on Christ we grow into his likeness we begin to look like him as we as Christ followers begin to more and more identify with Christ we will become less angry It is by definition what it means to be a follower of Christ. We grow in his image. A a lot of this just happens as you read the Bible and as you grow in your ability to understand it and as your appreciation for Christ's work increases and as your love for him grows and as your understanding of his grace and his mercy towards you grows. You just grow to be more like him. But sometimes... Sometimes there will be these stubborn sins in our lives. And each, each of us has different stubborn sins, deep-rooted sins that are hard to, to get out. And they seem to stick around longer than we'd like. Anger is almost always one of those stubborn sins because it's so deeply rooted in issues that we can't see. Sin lurking in the dark recesses of our hearts that we may not be aware of. Anger is, is, is an expression of those different sins. It's like a weed that we can pick and we can pick and we can pick. And we, we can do anger management stuff, but it never goes away because we haven't dealt with the root sin that that anger is springing out of. This is why we come together as a church. To encourage one another 
to bear one another's burdens. So with the rest of our time this morning, we're going to work together to help root out the sin of anger in our lives. All right? So if you're taking notes, we're now in section three, and we'll call this a strategy for dealing with anger. Before we begin, I want to let you know there are two books that I'd like to recommend to you. If this is something that, yes, I struggle with this, these are two books that that I would love you to read. If you'd like a copy of either of them, let me know. I'll get them for you. The first is Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. Dr. Bridges actually deals with several really common sin issues. But anger, the issue of anger, he gets two chapters in this book because it's such a problem. Another book is by a biblical counselor named Edward Welch. Dr. Welch's book is called A Small Book About a Big Problem. And this is a, it's a 50-day devotional that, that each day addresses the various ways that anger is showing up in our lives and how scripture addresses those issues. Very helpful book. Both of these were helpful as I prepared this week. I had a very real encounter with anger this week. Just to show you how common this sin problem is, here's one place it hit me. All right, I'm just going to confess sin. I got angry this week when I got up to make blueberry muffins for the family for breakfast. I got the flour together. I got the sugar together, the baking powder. I got it all mixed together in a bowl. I measured out the milk and the oil and put them in their own bowl. And then I went to to get eggs from the fridge. No eggs. (laughs) And that made me angry. So I asked my daughter to check and see if the chickens had laid any eggs. And they hadn't. And that made me angry. So I rudely asked her to check again with the help of her sister. And lo and behold, still no eggs. And now I'm still probably angrier than I was before. Then I started looking for the muffin tin. And I couldn't find it. And that made me angry. (laughs) Then I tried to use, I'm embarrassed to say this, tried to use mayonnaise as an egg substitute. (laughs) And I (laughs) ended up with really nasty muffins. (laughs) And they tasted grainy and sweet And because I don't like failure, that made me angry. (laughs) And my anger came out in all sorts of different ways that morning. My heart rate went up. My, the the volume of my voice increased. I was short with my family. Sorry, family, that I was short with you. Even trying to serve my family by making muffins, I realized that there is still very much darkness in me. A sin problem that, that dwells in me praise God that even making breakfast breakfast causes me to cling to Christ amen but but how do we work to lay aside sins like this that cling so closely And, and I will say it does take work to do this so I have six steps for you step one we're just going to go through these recognize your anger when it rises up and acknowledge that it is sin This seems obvious. It's not. Whether you have responded to a situation with a very visible anger like rage or hostility or you have responded to someone with a a feeling of disgust or just resentment, we need to name the sin as anger. We can't ever get past this expression of the sin in our hearts if we don't recognize it for what it is. 
can we you want name it theology this is it step two ask yourself this is really important ask yourself why am I angry when we ask why am I angry what are we doing we're trying to figure out why we've responded to this person or this situation with anger because anger is an expression of deeper sin when we ask why am I angry it helps us to expose the taproot the sin beneath the anger am I angry because someone insulted my pride am I angry because I'm defending my own interests am I angry because I'm selfish when a desire we have is being threatened we often respond with anger almost all the time some form or another another helpful question to ask then is what desire of mine is being threatened with my muffin fiasco I had a desire for control I still do cooking is something that is predictable something that is controllable I could control what time I woke up to make breakfast I could control my measurements I could control turning on the oven I can't control my hens. (laughs) So if I responded to their their lack of egg laying with anger, it's because they're outside of my control. And that bothered me. And so it made me angry. But that desire for control is an idol. It's a sin in me that anger was just an expression of. You see how that works? If you have a desire to be comfortable and someone threatens your comfort, you'll likely respond with some form of anger. James 4.1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, why do you get angry with one another? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, there's that word, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why do we get angry? Because we don't get what we want. There's a desire that we have that's, that's not being met. Anger is always an expression of a deeper, unmet desire. So the key to helping uproot anger is to uproot that unmet desire. A lot of times, we need a lot of help uncovering what this sin is. We can't see. This is a major blind spot for most of us. We sometimes can't see as clearly what others see in our lives. My wife knows I have an ungodly desire for control. And she helps me to uproot that. Your spouse knows you have desires that cause you to sin. Desires that are expressed when they're not met. That comes out as anger. Your friends know that about you. Ask them. Be willing to ask for help with step two. Because if you don't, you can't get to the rest of this. You can never uproot the, the anger problem in your life. Look at step three. Now that we know why we're angry, what do we do? We repent. Repent of the root sin first, though. Then repent of the anger. Let me show you what I mean. You've gotten through step two and through through careful self-reflection, you've realized that your root 
desire is, is selfishness, just plain childish selfishness. Maybe the circumstance that brought out your anger that day was a slow driver in front of you on the road. You, you've responded to a slow driver in front of you with a, a red face, a few choice words, and you might or might not have laid on the horn. Okay? A few minutes later, you remember Jesus' words here. That you are liable for your anger. You realized you had shown anger and that it was sinful for you to respond that way. That was step one, right? And then when you got to step two, you realized when you reflected on why you got angry, what was happening. Behind your anger, you realized was just selfishness. You thought that at seven in the morning, no one else should be driving on the entire interstate but you, right? (laughs) You are the center of the universe. And because there are other people there, your desire to own the freeway was not being met, and so you're angry. You see how this works? It's actually pretty simple. (laughs) So what do we do? So we repent of the root sin first. Repent of your selfishness. Repent of the sinful desire to have all your needs met before everyone else's. That sin believe it or not, is actually more destructive than anger. Because that sin comes out in a lot of places in your life you're not aware of. So repent as soon as you see it of the selfishness in your heart. Repent of that. And then deal with your anger. If you get through step two and you realize that your root sin is a desire for control, repent of that. Remember that God is the one in control. Trust him and move on. If you discover that your root sin is a desire for comfort outside of Christ, repent of that. Repent of the root sin first, and then repent of the expression of that sin, the anger. Step four, change your attitude towards the person that you're angry with. So if you've confessed your sin to the Lord and you've repented of your sin of anger and the root sin that caused it, now you're in sort of a neutral territory this person time to move to positive territory with them love them move to love them look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4 431 let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice those are all different forms of anger and then what do we do instead put off those things we and then be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you You see the heart change? In Christ, we move from anger towards kindness. That's all this step four is. Recognize that the person you are angry with is not the enemy. The sin within you is the enemy. Repent of that sin and then see that person, if they're a Christian, as a brother or a sister in Christ and love them as a brother or sister in Christ. And if they're not a Christian... See them as someone to let your light shine before so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven, just as Jesus commanded us. There's not another option here. There's not another type of person. There's two categories of people, brothers and sisters in Christ and potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Step five, 
If you have expressed anger, anger outwardly, seek forgiveness from the person that you have wounded. So if you said something belittling to someone, seek their forgiveness. If you were sarcastic towards someone, seek their forgiveness. If you were outwardly bitter towards them, seek forgiveness. If you were outrightly hostile, seek forgiveness. Even if they seem to have let it go, it seems like they have obeyed a, a, one of the, the, my favorite Proverbs and covered up your sin, still seek their forgiveness. Seek reconciliation with them. Our passage this morning is really clear about when we should do this too. When do we do it? Immediately. Seek reconciliation immediately. Look at verses 23 and 24 from our passage in Matthew. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So in the context of our passage, I think when, when he says your brother has something against you, I think he means your brother has an accusation against you. You've expressed anger against your brother in some way that is sinful and he is hurt because of it. And what does Jesus say to do? Even if you're right in the middle of worship, stop what you're doing. Seek reconciliation. Reconciliation is more important than that sacrifice that you're making. In fact, seeking to reconcile with your brother is actually more worshipful. That makes sense, doesn't it? What keeps us from reconciliation? Every time. Especially when we're the ones that are in the wrong. Pride. Pride keeps us from reconciliation. And what is pride? It's an, it's an elevation of our own opinion of ourselves over another. That is deep sin. To, to avoid immediate reconciliation is to embrace your pride over obedience to God. That is not worship. So we can't say, wait, I'm, I'm in church, or wait, I'm about to take communion, or wait, I'm about to make an offering. God doesn't want that. Reconcile immediately, he says. Verse 25 continues with this idea. Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. The, the idea that Jesus is getting at is that we are all walking on our way towards court, towards judgment. And if we allow unresolved sin to continue intentionally, then we'll be liable on that day. It, this is not a question of whether Christ has forgiven us for our sins. Okay, this is not works righteousness. This is an issue of knowing that we are angry towards a brother in Christ. We've acted on it, we've hurt him, and then we're living as if that doesn't even matter. To live as if your sin doesn't matter is to belittle Christ's work for you. It's to say that Christ died for their sins 
but you can take care of your own. Friends, Christ has freed you, not just from your sin. He's freed you to reconciliation. He's freed you to live in obedience to him, to live in the righteousness that he gives us. He has reconciled you to God. Show that reality by reconciling with your brother. Step six. Last one. Recognize God's sovereignty over the situation. And what do we mean by this? All of our sin is an expression of our distrust of God. Anger is especially that way. Before you get angry with a person or some or with some circumstance, this admonition to recognize God's sovereignty, it's saying this. Remember that God is doing something with that situation. He's shaping you in Christ-likeness. That's his purpose for you. That's his goal for you. To prepare you to leave this life more like Jesus than when you entered it. And that begins with his joining you in union with Christ and it increases the way that the Spirit grows you in holiness. So every circumstance in life, God's purpose in that is to grow you in holiness in some way or another. So we need to recognize that God is going to use particular people, even difficult people, to shape us. And he's going to use difficult circumstances to shape us. Being in Christ and growing more like him means your life doesn't revolve around you, right? I think we can agree on that together. So God is going to to put us in circumstances that show us that we are still more selfish, we're still more prideful and still more controlling than we should be if we're truly in Christ. Recognizing God's sovereignty means recognizing that this traffic jam or this misunderstanding or that backhanded comment from a friend is yet another opportunity to show you that your life isn't about you. So rather than responding in anger, respond with thoughts on God's goodness and his fatherly love toward you and his desire to be glorified in your life. Recognizing God's sovereignty when someone insults you means recognizing that God may have just allowed that to happen to help you better identify with your Savior. The one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for you. Recognizing God's sovereignty means that when you're angry at your boss because he just fired you, even if it's unfair, it means you get an opportunity to trust in God's provision. Do you see how this works? This isn't Pollyanna optimism, though. I'm not saying we should deny that things hurt. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's okay to hurt. But behind the hurt, when a friend abandons you, these are things that make us angry, right? When a friend abandons you, when someone disappoints you, when someone wrongs you, and every ounce of you just wants to respond with anger, 
what we need to see is that behind that circumstance, there is a God who is tenderly seeking to reform you into the image of his son. John Newton, the hymn writer that we talked about last week, I won't quote him again today, but he had a close friend named William Cowper. Have you heard of him? He's also a songwriter. He wrote several hymns and poems. But one of my favorites is the song, that God Moves in a Mysterious Way. In that song, William says, His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. To recognize God's sovereignty in these difficult circumstances means to allow God's purposes to be met in your life. When we respond in anger, we're telling God, he doesn't know what he's doing. That's what anger is. When we respond in faith, we're trusting that he does, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't see it. And so when we're wronged, we cling to Christ. We identify with Christ. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, right? James 1.19. A lot of us know this passage. But did you know that 13 other times in the Bible, we're told that God himself is slow to anger? Josh read one for us this morning. Thank you, Joshua. There you are. All throughout the Old Testament. One of... One of the praises of God is that he is slow to anger. And thank God he is slow to anger. When when he reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, this is what he says about himself. How he introduces himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the righteous nature of our God. And that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. If God, who is perfectly holy and righteous, is slow to anger, and his anger is always righteous, and he's still slow to to show it, how much more should we, who have been recreated in Christ to reflect his character, and yet still are very far from righteousness. How much slower should we be to anger? Way slower, right? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ.